Pathfinders, and welcome to the after party where Rick regrets his life choices. <laughs> welcome, Pathfinders. You don't get to say that. You're not in charge yeah, of the side. anymore. Yeah. You lost those privileges. She didn't say welcome, Pathfinders. Uh, We've had a she doesn't have to. She's the one in charge. She, she makes the call. Hello, Pathfinders. I said hello, I think. Yeah. I um, yeah, so we're going to try a different uh, approach. And I'm going to run this little round table after party, for better or for worse. So this is our after party number eight for the episodes in the Temple of the Erudite Eye. 22, 23, 24. Yep. Basically, where the group came in, fought some skelly jackals, fought a scary div, fought an elemental, followed a path left by the Scorch Hand, left all their magic in a box, went downstairs. Not all the magic. Ah, except Sagira and uh, Citra. On accident on my part, I will just say. Fair. <laughs> um, and then, what did we do? We found a secret entrance. We found, like, that, you know, some world-ending catastrophe thing is missing. And then we entered a room where there was a skeleton waiting on us. Well, not on us necessarily, but like he was chilling in there. Like like last crusade sort of waiting. Yeah. Wasn't there the whole like silver chain in there too? No. No, no, the, no. Uh, there was like a fountain, like we splashed around well, the fountain. Yeah, I mean there was the we found out that the, that we yeah. Episode twenty two is starts with the jackal fight. Starts yeah. with the deflated jackals. Oh, okay. So and my first question about this is what does that fountain do? What should it have done? Yeah. <laughs> Did it do we anything? We were good little ne- uh, nephites, nep- I, yeah. I believe. For the moment, I, I won't go into a to a deep cut on it. I will say it does give a benefit. If you follow Nethys, probably. Do you have to follow Nethys? Do you have to not Let's throw say sh- everyone in, in the party wouldn't benefit from it. Oh. Also, throwing crap into the fountain probably doesn't help. Oh, yeah, we but, saw how that ended up. Well, that was the, the story with this fountain... Let's just say it's not over yet. Okay. okay oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, because... Uh, so you guys if, did find the fountain in that episode yeah, yeah, after if, you fought the jackals. Yeah. If people thought I was crazy, um, we have actually played in adventures where there have been offerings to deities. I have put down a coin and gotten above. Yeah, so but obviously not a fountain before. that has no other coins in it and a god of magic. It's not Abadar. Hey, I didn't know if that little guy was scooping... Well, actually, I didn't know that guy existed at the time, but he could have been <laughs> scooping up all those coins um, and had a little like, treasure trove like Zone Dragon. I want to know what triggered the golem. Downstairs. Oh, that's a different episode. Yeah, you're jumping whitehead. I don't care. That's my question. <laughs> okay. I do. I we do will table know. that question for later. I do want to know about that div. The uh, div, yes. Yeah, because like that yes, was a really a interesting fight. fight to have an, a sandstorm inside of a temple. Did he speak Terran? No, he did not. Okay, uh, he's fine. a div. That doesn't. Uh, that's not the well, he was point. sandy. I don't know. See, I wanted I believe, to know. I believe if he, he had res- abyssal, infernal, and celestial. Oh, okay, I speak celestial, but you know. Well, you weren't going to think, you know what? Angel language. Well, he also doesn't speak. He tried to telepathically communicate with Sagira. It was weird. Because he was just trying to figure out whether or not you spoke a language that he did so he could start using his, like, suggestion spells. Oh, man. I'm glad glad Sagira knows no language. And those wouldn't have worked on on yours because he's not a person, so. It's true. Okay, so any other Um, questions from this episode? Charm and stuff? Charm, Uh, person. Yeah. I'm still curious as to, um, like, what flayed the jackals. Uh, Uh, Yeah, was it the div? Was it the guy with the shoes? With no shoes. So this... This is a, a host kind of thing, but I'm curious, show of hands, it's not a literal show of hands. How many people think it was the Scorched Hand, I and still, how many people think it's Barefoot Guy? I still think it's the Scorched Hand. I think hand. it's Div. No, okay, I don't think he has that kind uh, of You're thinking, uh, you're thinking my, of Scorched Hand? I think yeah, it's a Scorched I'm, Hand. I'm going on Scorched Hand, too. Scorched Hand? I didn't get the vibe of the Scorched Hand being evil. Cocky, you don't have yes, to be evil to use necromancy. Still, that just seems... People have an inherent love of animals. If you don't, you're psychotic. Let's be honest. 
That's the reason why in movies, all the people can die. But if you hurt that dog, I'm going to have an issue. Valeriana kind of gives me a very neutral or evil vibe. Just the way she acts. I don't think she's good aligned. She seems evil, but she has, like, now I feel like maybe she had a point in trying to find this site so, like, ruthlessly. We don't know if that's what she was after, though. There could, no. She might have just wanted to come here because it's a temple of Nephis, for all we know. I mean, maybe, but she seemed really, like, intense about it. Yeah. Like, like she, she knew something just, we didn't. She tried to just, it's, you, she could have waited around for someone to come out of it and, like, buy the stuff. She seemed like she had money, um, but she, like, wanted to get it herself. What, I still don't what think What kind of evil them. do you think? What? You're, you're guessing that she's evil. Yeah, I think she's what evil. What kind of evil? Probably neutral evil because she's neutral willing evil? to break the law and stuff to do what she needs uh, to yeah, do. Yeah, that's a fair point. And follower of Nethos. Yeah. Neutral makes sense. Neutral. Yeah. What about her uh, her cohorts? Well, we know the clerics get aligned because he channeled positive energy. Oh, or he's true neutral. So, yeah, he could yeah. be. Well, he could be any of the neutrals. He could be any of the neutrals that are evil. Did you see who he followed? They all follow Nethos. They all follow Nethos. Except for Adori. Adori does not. Okay, anything from that episode? What else? That was the Div fight. That was the first half of the Div fight. Then mm. we had the second half of the Div fight. And we just kind of followed the Scorched Hand around the temple. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm going to actually pick something that uh, <laughs> I, I read about it on a comment on Reddit that I really liked because it was a really interesting point that I hadn't really thought of. So I really, that's why I really like reading comments and stuff from Do you know fans. who made the comment? Dyslexic and loving it? Yeah, I think was that's who did it. Yeah, basically the gist of the comment is that uh, what's really interesting about that fight is that the sandstorm is dynamic. It's not, here's a flat penalty that you take just because it's a sandstorm. I didn't even think about that, but it was one of those things, like I actually liked it also that we rolled too, so it was more like what we saw yeah. Um, which was actually really cool. Um, I but think I didn't think about that being just a flat penalty normally. I decided to go with that at the spur of the moment. I think mechanically I'm supposed to bounce a die and determine how far all of you can see during that turn mm-hmm. until it comes back around to maybe when the, the ability triggered. I don't know, uh, that was a more interesting you, way. Well, and you guys were so scattered about yeah. that yeah. I thought it worked well where Citra felt like she was isolated because at one point, for, I think for two rounds, she couldn't see anyone else in the party. They just left her with an elemental <laughs> in the middle of a sandstorm. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. This. Yeah, we got you. You were fine. <laughs> Teamwork. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> all right, so... Well, I, actually, I have a question for all of you. So, a little peek behind the curtain here because that's just kind of what we're doing on this. That div could cast Bestow Curse... At will. That's insane. Uh, what? I have read some encounters where I've read some where people have like walked in and managed to kill them, like the first round of combat through just sheer dumb luck and critical hits. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but I have read some where one guy said that it got off fourteen bestow curses. Holy! Oh. The party filled. There are some times uh. where I think the challenge ratings are a little skewed. Yeah. Like, Bestow Curse at will on a challenge rating four monster is bananas. Well, I guess my question here is, what do you think about permanent status effects? I think that if you're going to throw something at us that has permanent status effects like that, it should only be able to do it two or three times a day. Because at this level, your healers literally cannot do anything about this. Like, even if we had an opportunity to rest, Onuris can't do squat because it's permanent. We're going to have to go scrounging around to the other temples to try to find restoration spells. Or remove curse. I feel like if you're fighting something that's equal to or lower than your challenge rating, you should be able to get rid of the effects it gives you. You know, do you, or, or it's like it can do it once per day, so only one person is totally hosed instead of everyone in the party's stats are all down by 12. 
have fun. Yeah, <laughs> and as, as an interesting thing, even if it was only able to do it thrice per day, it wouldn't have changed that combat at all because it only tried it three times. I know, I understand, but yeah. I'm just saying... But you just said a group did it 14 yeah. times. Yeah, that's that's how, do you, how do you even continue on at that point? I mean, that's like 14 rounds of combat. How long was that fight for us? I don't think it was 14 uh, it was rounds. Long, uh, I long. think it ran 7 or 8. It could also dimension door at will. Like, I, I know. Yeah. It totally ruined yeah, my once a day ability of <laughs> elemental the, assault. The funny thing about it, though, is you said it had a gaze attack. Yeah. So it kicked up a sandstorm that actually hurt its ability to use its gaze attack. Yes. So there's kind of an interesting thing there also, but... Well, it also, it also I think, works to its advantage because we're stumbling around trying to find it, and then when we do, we're immediately have its gaze. You can't, you can't do the thing like you would if it was a clear thing where, okay, I look away and I take a penalty. Yeah. You can't, that was nigh impossible to do in that fight because you didn't know where it was. I will say <laughs> I very much enjoyed that fight for a couple of different reasons, just to give a kind of a, a GM standpoint on it. First off, I hope we got across some of this to all of you guys, other than just the storm being dynamic. It also utilized almost the entirety of the room. Yeah, There was a was lot a of moving, room, yeah. there was a lot of ducking and moving around. And so I appreciated that element of it, just because I like to incorporate the entire room, be able to send it around. I also liked how everyone in that fight pretty well contributed. Mm -hmm. Even on yours, who actually, I think, only really did one thing in that fight, that one thing he did was stun the creature and lock it in place so it could get sneak attacked and stab the crap out of. Yep. So it was actually, I think it was a really good fight for all of you all around. Just, it's interesting because that was the, pretty much the opening to this set of three episodes, and then for the following episodes, the entire party is just weakened. Yeah, and I mean, I get probably what they're going for there, but I really don't like it when monsters have abilities that you can't, after the fact, get rid of. We're yeah. stuck with this until we get back to town. If yeah. we're in this temple another seven episodes on yours, the strength is going to be at an eight that entire time. Well, well. And there's there's a, a play style that we have that a lot of people apparently don't have where we pretty much go until we are out of resources. We push through probably when it may not even be the best idea to do that. And in this case, we actually have an impetus of we want to stop the scorched hand, but mm -hmm. we've also had this happen before where basically we run out of healing and only then are we like, okay, we need to stop and take a rest, especially if it's like a, a dungeon crawl or something like that because there are probably groups that have gone in, they have two or three encounters, say, uh, and then leave, go rest up, take it again. Yeah, so we've been going really fast. Like it, this, this, that the tomb of I don't know. Yeah. That, that harkens back to the realism conversation we had before. Mm-hmm that it is unrealistic to go halfway through a dungeon that has intelligent creatures in it and the party jets and rests and come back and for the monsters who are still in the dungeon to have stayed in their little room and not gone to investigate what why, you know the orc like if it was an orc tribe yeah why haven't the other orcs come out and gone half of our friends are dead you know what i mean <laughs> it just the video game logic, when they find a dead body, they search for you for about 30 seconds, oh, and they wow. go, well, I guess he wandered yeah, off. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it harkens back to that We're realism <laughs> thing, and I think us as a group, we kind of keep that in mind. Right now, we could leave, and we could go to a temple, and we could pay for remove curses. We have the money for it, but then by the time we get back, who the hell knows where the scorched hand is going to be? Who the heck knows if this barefoot guy is still around somewhere? I mean... It's not realistic for the group to leave right now. Not unless something insane happens at this point. Yeah. Speaking of insane, we all leveled up kind of after that dip fight. In that episode, end of it. 
Yeah, the end of that. What did we just? We did something and we leveled up right at the very end. I can tell you. We might have been disabling that trap. Oh, I, I think, think it, it might have been. It was a trap. Mm. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what we all got in our so, level. Up. Yeah, episode 24. Yeah, the newest one is the one where we were fourth level. Yep. And we yeah. had some of our new abilities. You're looking at me like you're I'm looking start. at Jordan. Uh, okay, so um, Sudi obviously still a monk, uh, now fourth level. For Unchained Monks, that gives him actually a plus two bonus versus enchantments, plus one to his AC, uh, you know, the standard plus one base tech bonus, all that stuff. That's not too cool. Um, That's not too sexy. Yeah, what uh, is actually cool is getting a key power, which uh, I took key metabolism, which I, I was looking through them all, and I was like, this seems really cool and something that will probably down the road save my life. So key metabolism causes you to only have, as long as you have a key point in your key pool, you eat and drink a fourth as much as usual. You have only have to sleep for two hours a night even to regain your key pool. And you can hold your breath for one hour per constitution score. Well, CD learned his lesson from the sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, well, that's why I was like, this is going to save my life in the future, because now if I get swallowed... If I get swallowed again, Sudi's like, I live here now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but also, it's like, you know, the, the, the big things that always kill people um, that I'm always afraid of dying from is suffocation, usually for drowning, and falling. And so being able to be like, okay, well, drowning is, suffocating is less likely, I think is cool. So, yeah, that's, uh, that was my big thing that I got that I was like, oh, that's super cool. I definitely have to talk about that. Cool. Breach. I, too, am playing an Unchained character. I've actually really enjoyed playing an Unchained Rogue. This is the the second time I've done it. One of the best features that I think they added to it was the debilitating injury, um, Mm -hmm. where basically if I get a sneak attack off, I get to choose a category to debilitate my foe. So I can either take off from their attack rolls, lower their AC, or slow down their movement speed. Not only does it take off like the minus two at this level, it ups uh, like every fourth level. So I think it goes up at like eighth and sixteenth. But it's double for my character. <laughs> we totally use that. Yeah. To yeah. make sure that that statue would stop hitting us. Uh huh. So that that is probably the the best thing that my character got at this. Level. I think that actually probably saved you from at least one additional. At least hit. one, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a cleric. So you're a cleric. Not much. Spells. <laughs> hey. You got some spells. Yeah, I got another first and second level spell, and my wisdom went up by one. So yeah, that's it. Odd levels are the way more exciting levels for me. <laughs> uh, let's see, Sakira. I actually took a level of brawler, um, the wild child archetype, so I could still get my kitty. So kind of weirded out by your cat mystically appearing. She's magical. But but animals do that in real life though. Dogs will like track their owners halfway across the freaking country. I want to know so. how she got past the. Uh... Cats randomly showing up places is probably the least weird thing. I don't know. How <laughs> did she get past the voices of the spire and through town? She People just were just like wall. probably jumped over the wall. <laughs> she just leaped a wall and slinked her way around. I, don't I know. mean, as long as she's not like that cat from the video, you know, where it's like on the fence and it jumps toward the barn roof and just it goes just straight fails. down. Yeah, it just fails. I hope that that would not be the case. Well, no, I'm saying obviously it's not natural. One. I mean, it could be, I guess, with the net one. Yeah. Um, so with Brawlers, I can now kind of use a move action to get a combat feat that I don't have, that I meet the prerequisites for. So I get power attack, which I don't have um, normally. Or I can get improved grapple for use against grappling, because apparently that's the thing that we do a lot. Sagira grapples a lot of things. Um, Secretly, then, you were on the wrestling team. I was a little disappointed <laughs> you didn't gra- grapple the goal. I was not going to grapple the golem. Um, I put it in a headlock. That's that's it for cool stuff that I got. So it's kind of fun. 
Yep. So that brings us to the third episode. 24? Yeah, 24. Sure. I want to know what triggered that statue. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that one pretty much walked with or started with you guys uh, dropping all of your items. Well, the last one ended with you dropping all of your items in that uh And that then we chest. went downstairs and then we got attacked. Yep. You, uh, <laughs> Immediately. Entered the, uh, yeah. the catacomb antechamber. Long story short, it's a uh, statue of Nethys. The guardian silently animates. If. Pretty much as once you guys start making your way down there. Interestingly enough, Citra actually got a perception roll on the statue, not just to notice things about the statue, but to actually notice that the, that the statue was spellcasting. Oh. The statue kicked in haste before you guys walked into oh, it. Oh, that's why it's getting three attacks. So it just attacks anyone that walks down there? The guardian silently animates and attacks anyone not openly wearing or displaying the holy symbol of yeah. Nethys. Mm. I was right. Dang it, first hand. Cool. Terrible. That but also that means probably, that. It probably still attacked them because they're, what's her name, Iori? Uh, Idori. Idori yeah. wouldn't have had a holy uh, that Unless they recognized the statue and gave her a holy yeah, symbol. You don't have did. to worship the deity, you can just be wearing a yeah. holy symbol. Yeah, I, that also makes me wonder if Barefoot Guy or Gal had a holy symbol too. Somebody else fought it. Because somebody else fought it, exactly. So, Barefoot Guy or Gal or person. Barefoot human being or elf. Or <laughs> bare, barefoot it. The, belt, the, the barefoot, barefoot entity. The barefoot medium-sized humanoid. You know? yes, yes. Getting very specific. <laughs> Right. Of some indeterminate subspecies. <laughs> Correct. Point out one other thing about that encounter that I thought was interesting but didn't actually come into play. So the Grieving Guardians are interesting because they actually get a domain. Ah. Yeah. This one's assorted abilities include the fact that its quarterstaff, for all mechanical purposes, counted as keen. Oh. I just oh. never managed to get a 19. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Good. I did appreciate it. To be fair, it had a... Uh, Plus 11, plus 11, plus 6 for its attacks. So it was, even if Onurus was wearing his armor or Sagira was at full dexterity, it would have probably still. I don't know. My armor and my shield on yours has a 19 armor class. It rolled higher than that a few times, but it would have missed me. Yeah, I mean, Now I'm wondering if I should have left my armor behind. You should have put it on. That's an interesting question. But I mean, we're not through this dungeon yet. I will ask about that when we leave. Onurus is real faithful, so he would have been. He is. Anything else from this episode? Just the plot hook. I was going to say, the the giant, rather giant plot mask. hook. I'm sure that's probably, you know, it's a mask and we're playing mummies mask. mask. You know, I, the, I, if this is like the, the hook, right? The, always, the thing I always look for is what is the title of the adventure path? And if that's the mummy's mask, like the title one, it's not on a mummy. It's Masks. on a statue. It's just a mask. What if well, it was on a mummy? And also the if that whole... that baseless thing is a mummy? The, the Egyptians believe that your ka returned to your mummy every night. That's how you got up and walked around in the physical world. So if this mask has something to do with his ka and his ka is not at rest... That's because it's not with his body. Yeah, so theoretically you would have to take the mask uh, to the mummy for it to reawaken this forgotten pharaoh. But they would separate uh, it because it's dangerous together. See, I didn't even, I didn't even go to that place, yeah. so you're, that makes a lot more sense. They William Wallace this guy. Like, instead of... <laughs> instead of we have, we've gone into uh, a totally different mythology now. Over the next five books, you're going to be finding individual body parts to bring them back together. Uh, hey, this yes. is not Buffy. That's what they did with the judge. You know, that's a pretty... There's our once-per-after-party Buffy reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you put your quote in a stuff. Whatever, he got blown up by Azuka because Buffy is awesome. Fair but, enough. But yeah, I mean, that's my thought on it anyway. If it's, is his funeral mask and his cause not at they'd rest, want they'd want to keep it away from his mummy. 
to stop him from returning and the right, legions of rising the undead. back up. Yeah, scorpion so. king style. No, so I'm sure it's an artifact and it has some redonkulous requirements to destroy it, and that's why they just set it down here well, in the temple. Considering that the, the spot <laughs> it was in was still blazing with yeah. magic, like yeah, it's it couldn't be anything else other than either an artifact or something that's deifically touched. Which I mean, well, Brick used the words deific magic when yeah, on your so almost blacked out from looking at it. It is it generates overwhelming magic, which to clarify that actually to clarify that for listeners as well. An aligned item or spell to be overwhelming must be a higher than ninth level spell, which basically means mythic spell casting or yep. caster level of twenty one or higher. Yeah, see it's yeah, an so it's an it's artifact. Mythic. Yeah, so it's definitely an artifact. So the question is is Rick also pointed out that the mask is only half bad mojo and the other half was okay. So what's the chance that this forgotten guy ain't so bad? What if you put the mask on and you become the forgotten guy? Hmm? Well, it's also the, the you know, the three parts, the thrice divided. So there's Ka, Ba, and Ib. So you'd have to have all three pieces, basically, to put him back together if you're going to go that route. So it's possible that we, you know, this may be the first part, and then there's another part. We are all now on an episode of Legend of the Hidden Temple. Oh, good gracious, you're right. And we have to find the three pieces and put them together to save the world. Before or destroy the timer it. runs out. I always wanted to slap those people that had to assemble the statue thing and they're putting like the wrong pieces. What order? It's like, apparently, it's in I read, it, order, I read an article about that and apparently they don't fit, it doesn't fit together that easily. Oh. Like It, it, it looks a it lot easier than it is on TV than it actually is. Huh. Apparently... Like, the way the pieces are cut and the way they click together is actually, like, surprisingly difficult. Interesting. Yeah. All right. We're going to move on now. <laughs> okay. So what do we think about the Scorched Hand now? I still don't think they're, don't think she was here for that mask. <laughs> I still don't trust them. I mean, I've, I've got the feeling that Sudi does, and I even commented on it as Sudi. They are breaking the law and literally offending for Rasma. Yeah. By Aniris coming is... in here. So I have no sympathy for them, and I also think that that is, at minimum, a chaotic act, but possibly an evil act. They're breaking the, they're break, they're specifically breaking the laws of the of the city and the entire nation of Osirian at this point. Well, they're chaotic. That doesn't mean evil. See, I, I guess maybe because I'm playing more Citra. Are you neutral or chaotic? I am neutral good. Okay. But I, it feels more like desperation. If you really are going against everything that this country has set up and this city has set up to do this and desperate to get to this location, there's got to be a reason other than I'm an Ethis follower and this is an ancient site. It's just... Like, it's it just... Something about the arrogance of every time we've talked to her is what's off-putting me. She, oh, has, she hasn't had, like, a desperation. It's an, I need to get here because I'm important, is well, what the attitude she's given she's me. She's not a nice person, but that doesn't necessarily mean that... She could have the air of, like, none just, of these peons are worth my time, but I have to talk to them because I must find this site. It doesn't necessarily mean she's going to, like beg people. You know? I don't know. I just my years of gaming experience I just have the vibe. But Kelru is nice. Kelru is pretty friendly and he like, yeah. he definitely channels good so he can't be evil. So I mean he's along for the ride. So yeah, she could be not nice. She's not nice. But the rest of her party isn't necessarily terrible. I mean the other kid is just with Kelru. He's just kind of there. And then so she could. Has, yeah. She's also not from here. She could have the air of like, oh, these idiotic Assyriani with their stupid rules getting in my way. Oh yeah, she's Talbot, yeah. isn't she? Yeah, yeah, she's yeah that, here. that could explain a lot. I just, I don't I know. I don't. Suspected that she was. Uh, 
Talde nobility. Yeah, she's she's she kind of has yeah. that. Yeah, so but... she's effectively a British noblewoman tromping down into yeah. Egypt. I, just, I don't like her. I don't but like I, her. I think she has more to her than we were thinking previously. Yeah, I'm hoping she was looking for that mask, and I'm hoping when we find them, we learn more about what that is. Or maybe if they didn't even know it was a mask, but they knew there was something here that, like, yeah. caused the plague, or, you know, something that, like, messed the world up. Because Nepis has a lot of, like, archives and stuff not too far from here. It's, like, across a strait. It's across an ocean. The one I'm in Kadira? I'm talking about the Kadiran place. Yeah, that's literally across the oh, inner yeah, sea. That's, yeah, that's on the other side of the inner sea is yeah. the... Yeah. Uh, Whatever that library is called. I want to say Mysterium. And they have all sorts of knowledge, so, I mean... Well, and Sothis is almost the capital of... Not only it's the capital of Osirium, but also the primary focus for the Church of Nethys. Yeah, like, so, I mean... it's huge and... She could I, know, I just think it's weird that if they were sitting on this, that they sh- that they waited until now to show up and by the chance of the lottery. If they're willing to break all the rules and go in anyway, they wouldn't have waited for the lottery to do it. Well, they may have been scared of trying to go... Like, getting into the undead, the half-dead city before was way more dangerous than pretending to do the lottery and getting into the Half Dead City. That, it gets yeah, them it was through the, the cover. Gate. Also, yeah, there the seems gate. to be like a sudden, someone wanted that suddenly kind of a thing. Or maybe there was a real chance now that someone else could find oh, it. Oh, right, because it's open. Maybe they were just relying on the spire to guard it because nobody's supposed to go in there anyway. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Lots of theories. We'll find out. Let us know if you have any of your theories. Yes, of theories. Yourselves, yeah. Tweet us. Uh, theories. Please tweet us, Reddit us. Use hashtag find the path pod. Yeah, because uh, we'd also like to know what your theories are. All right, so now we're going to do some shout outs. The first shout out is out to uh, Nerds on Earth uh, with Clave. Clave Jones. Clave Jones. Um, put out an article about Horace, which is, you know, on Eurus' favorite DNA. I like that article a lot. <laughs> and he gave us a little shout-out, so we're going to give him a little shout-out, some uh, some quid pro quo, I suppose. Just throwing this out. Something about the name Clave Jones sounds like it should be like the alternate identity for some sort of uh, superheroes or yeah. something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Clave, so. Clave Jones, real-life vigilante. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Maybe. L- little do Maybe. we know. We're making up Clave's backstory. <laughs> <laughs> He'll well, appreciate what, what class, that. What, yeah, what class would he be if he was yes. a real person? Or he was a Pathfinder person? Extra <laughs> bonus points for anyone that stats out Clave Jones, vigilante. <laughs> 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 it's like if he's a vigilante, like what's it like? Is he Batman? Like what? The, the Earth Nerd. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, Earth Man. Earth Original. Captain Planet. Basically Captain Planet. And now we've hit Clave our Jones. prerequisite nineties references. Clay's gonna be like, "What hey, is Clave. wrong with you people? Get at us. We will uh, give you your identity later." Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in, interesting, um, fun news, I guess. Sazak. 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 That's what I'm going with. I don't actually. On Twitter. Your yes. Twitter handle, at Sazak. I'm ashamed of this one. Um, corrected Rick, which is an awesome. Uh, whoa, Please whoa, whoa, whoa. add us all the time. Whoa, full, full, full stop. Rick got something wrong. Yeah, yeah I know. I was like, what? Already Unpossible. Unpossible. I am at least 98% human. <laughs> Working on those two percent. Um, okay. Celestial. He what says. Did you get wrong? <laughs> Listening to the newest F a few minutes in, and I found what I believe is the first mistake you guys have made with the rules. Stabilizing with the heal skill does not take uses of the healer's kit unless you choose to use it for a plus two bonus. It is true. That is correct. 
Oh. Which I... means, thanks, Sazak, you gave us some charges of our healer's kit back. Yes. Yay. Like a on, bunch of them. Onuris can do some uh, treat w- deadly wounds, which seems to be necessary right yeah. now. Yeah, I'm going to really wish I had had you do that. Uh, like, really wish. Before then, I got stabbed by this grave knight. <laughs> I hope it's not a grave knight. Uh, I love you didn't grave describe with armor. Then, we got an email. We have two emails this week. So, TJ from West Crown. Poor West Crown. I love West Crown. He specifically requested West Crown. West Crown's the best. I choose to believe it's West Crown before Council of Thieves. So, you know, good luck with those shadows. Don't Um, don't go out at night. Don't go out at night. I mean, that's pretty good advice anywhere, even in Ustalov. Um, (laughs) He says, good evening to all you wonderful players and game master. And if anyone else needs to read this because Rick hates reading positive comments, hand it off to somebody. This was the only way it was going to get read. It's me. (laughs) It's a me, somebody. Thank you for making a difficult time much more bearable for me. Stuck at home because of asthma and the California wildfires. Ugh. Uh, imagine my surprise when I stumbled across your podcast and the quality of playing that made it not just a distraction, but an inspiration for my own game mastering. Aww. Yeah, very nice. Aw, thank, thank you. you. Uh, and our, our hearts do go out to everyone that is having to deal with the wildfires out there. So yeah. And everybody, nothing both you. the coasts are it's like, yeah, she's mm. got fires on one end and water on the other. We heart you guys. <laughs> need to the <laughs> Poor Sudi's searching of that one room under a suggestion spell. And did he ever get that arrow out of his back? <laughs> Sagira's new revelation about her family and the loss of her mother. Onuris's hallucinogenic tour of Wati <laughs> under the effect of the plague of madness. And why did he want to go to that pharaoh's house? Citra's delightful flirts with a certain rogue and that poor symbol she drew for his shield. Aww. It's lucky. It, 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 he believed in it, so it was okay. It's placebo. Belief is all that matters. Belief um, won't actually stop a mummy, as was proven by the fact that he may have mummy. I rock. need to go check on him after. <laughs> well, if we ever get out of here. And of course, Rick's nonstop details, both rich and vibrant, that add both to the world and the combat scenes in vast variety. Thank you, TJ. They've all made lying still for long hours at a time bearable. Yeah. So now we got some questions. First of all, in all my years game mastering for Pathfinder and D&D's many previous editions since first, I must admit I had never considered adding such depth and texture to simple module comments like Rick has for this Mummy's Mask adventure path. The other foreign adventurers, the tension with the voices of the Spire, and the crumbling Wati economy, even the bar and inn scenes with NPC romances and drunken statue climbing, I doff my cap to thee, Rick. Well, uh, I like that. <laughs> You've given a high bar for me to go back and rewrite my next adventure to, and I salute you. Yep. Well, thank you. I actually, I talked a little bit on the subreddit with someone <laughs> pertaining towards something very close to this, and I made a uh, an analogy that I think was a little forced, but I think it works. Paizo does a great job of providing a, uh, a framework, a house, if you will, and then putting up the walls and everything else, and then you can run it as is. And as is, the stories are great, but the stories are designed with the intent of being changed and modified using this analogy for the game master to come in and put in furniture to make it look the way he wants to and paint the walls and add all of those other minor details and elements to make the players feel connected to the story. Makes the story your group's story, which makes it different, makes our playthrough of this different from every other Mummy's Mass playthrough. Uh, Number two. I've been puzzling over this since episode 14 with Imanesh. Uh-huh. If they had him pinned in cold iron arrows, is there a reason they didn't coup de gras him? Because we're dumb and we didn't think about it. Uh, there's 100% a did not think about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because, I mean, when you're in the moment, I mean, technically we're not physically doing it, but we are trying to, like, process through everything. Like, oh, my God, you just 
we don't do a whole lot of coup de grind. Like, that's just I, not a thing I, we do. I think I could probably count on one hand how many times we've done it in all the games. And as a yeah. story element to it, I, I appreciate the fact that, yes, you could have thought of that. But there is always this, this top-down tactical view that everyone has when you're playing this game. Because you are literally looking down at the map and deciding how you're going to do things tactically and figuring out every five-foot square. And so I actually kind of appreciate the fact that you guys were just as frustrated as your characters. Yeah. yeah. Going, oh, I, I can't so damage frustrated. this thing. I can't do anything to this thing. It's turning invisible yeah. until finally Jessica's just like, you know what? I'm just going to hold it and beat it until the ground, <laughs> into the ground until it stops. In the meantime, Sudi's digging around through a room playing a game of Jumanji. And, <laughs> like, I, I, I think Rachel couldn't roll five above eight. a freaking five or six for most of that fight because she was just yeah. shooting off arrows into the middle of the... Uh, into the far door and so I, I sometimes feel like the frustration of things translates over and you'll even I'm not see gonna, that sometime. I'm not going to lie the more frustrated I get the more I forget about the stuff my characters yeah. can do I'm just like yeah. I'm just going to keep doing this one thing <laughs> until it's dead yeah it kind of came up a little bit in episode 24 where Peon Yuris is in here and he needs to be doing something and just Heather playing the character goes I'm standing here with no freaking armor Yep. Just, just, okay. and then much, much like the shirtless Conan, he took a five foot step back and then hid behind the ranger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, and sometimes you're just in the moment and you just kind of have to think it's your character. Is the excuse that I'm going to use for them not just remembering? It, it, it is one of those things. Like when you really get into the role play, you you do kind of forget that stuff because you're the character, right? And so yeah, and on yours, his intelligence is still a little bit drained too. So it's one of those. He has a headache. His strength is drained. He has no armor. It's like what the. I doing? I'm still a little crazy. <laughs> it is kind of funny that like when you're playing through something and your character's been going through the slog, your dice rolls will sometimes start reflecting yes. that. I don't. It's yes, it's weird. It's like, oh, your character would not roll well on that. And so then we kind of just incorporate it into the story. Like, yeah, well, they have this, this, and this, this. It makes sense. Yeah, well, we, we, we do a lot of justifying sense. for our dice's uh, misbehaving. Which I actually encourage everyone to do because it, it does kind of flow with the story to sometimes just say, like, well, like Se when I totally Segura. made that awful roll to try to aid Segura in combat. It's like, oh, yours has an eight strength. He's just like, eh. Thank you, dice. Thank also, you for- we're not a group that does crit failures we don't do the whole like and your sword swings out and hits your friend and now they're dead we don't do any of that <laughs> the greatest swordsman in the world has a five percent chance to stab his buddy in the eye <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. so, throw his sword off a cliff <laughs> throwing throwing in like reasons that you fail makes things fun when you fail a lot take my word for it true Moving along, TJ's question number three. I love after-party sessions when the players describe their thought processes and particularly their character inspirations. I myself had a character inspired 20 years ago by a new romance and decided to make a character based on him. And he turned out to be my longest-running and most in-depth character I'd ever played. And yes, in case you're wondering, I married that nerd. Yay. Yeah, good for, good you. for you. Put a ring on it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, my question for the players is, have you ever made a character based on a love interest or enemy, and how did that change you if it did? <laughs> I don't think I've ever made a character based. I mean, I made characters based on, like, video game characters and stuff, but never on a real person. Uh, I've never made a character that's based on a real person, um, because, um, and this is, <laughs> this is probably going to sound terrible, um, none of them would be good adventurers. Hey, um, I'm personally offended. Oh, uh, yeah, right, include, No, no, I include myself in that. Like, I, I would not be a good adventurer. Jordan and I were just joking around earlier about how we would die in, like, five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I mean, well, it's like, when I go to the gym, like, I, I was joking around with, my, with the trainer. I was like, I, I do this, and I put myself in this much pain with my, with my mantra of, I want to be able to do what my characters can do. 
I am I never going to be able to do anything my D&D characters can do. I'm just saying. I want to be able yeah. to cast spells and talk to animals. <laughs> you know? um, um, teleport. I, I don't think I've ever created a Pathfinder character, but I've written a lot of characters based on people just for one. Ooh, but yourself definitely. is different. I feel like characters always have a little bit of yourself in them. Yes, definitely. definitely. I, but I can't say I've ever, like, flat out said, hey, this person is the inspiration for this character, for, for my Pathfinder characters. Now, for, like, my own fiction writing, heck yeah, I base it off of all kinds of people that mm-hmm. I know. So mm-hmm. it's a little different. And then, granted, most of my Pathfinder characters that I first started out with, I actually based off of characters that I'd written in fiction, and I just tweaked a couple things. Yeah. So, yep. so in answer to that question, I would say... Uh, no. Yeah, all the time. What? What? I, and I'm going to take this from the standpoint of a game master because that's most of what I do. Yeah. I will make an NPC and just be like, this seems like one of the guys from work. Elements of his character in and that's put him in. Uh, I, I also have, just on the subject of enemies and everything, specifically taking elements of a person. We all went to school and people in school are horrible. Generally speaking, I have taken elements of these people that I've known from from school where bully from back in grade school. I understand his motivation. And sometimes they're real world ogres. And you can then translate that into a literal ogre in a literary sense and understand this idea. It's, It's a big brutish person that just because they grew up to be larger than everyone else thinks that gives them the right to do things that they don't have the right to do. So yeah, I would say that I actually, I, I use people from my life as inspiration for a number of characters that I include in, even though I usually try my best not to do caricatures of them. So yeah, I, I would say that I do take inspiration from people that I know in the real world to make NPCs. And that is a great suggestion also for GMs out there. That if you, you're just like, okay, if you ever go to the bar and you know a bartender at the bar or you have a friend of yours that is a bartender, instead of having this be a generic bartender at a bar in Galarian or wherever it is in Ustalov, have it be like, what would Mike be like if he had to tend a bar for half works? <laughs> and just roll with it. <laughs> All right. Lastly, a suggestion. Can you put somewhere in the notes or at the end of a session, after session, some of the source material you use to research ancient Egypt outside of Pathfinder source books. In particular, it sounds like the players know a fair amount about Egyptian gods and culture, and I'm curious if they can recommend any sources. Now, this actually sounds like it'd be a fun thing to, now that we have a blog, to add this as a blog article for the the books that we've read through previously, some suggestions on simple approaches. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all just accumulated this knowledge and love of uh, Egyptology over a long life. I was cleaning out my closet this week and I came across this oversized coffee table book on Egypt that I've had since I was like a little girl. Like my mom bought it before I was even born. And I found it in her closet when I was like five or six and I loved it. And I remember we were getting ready to move and we were having a garage sale and she'd put it outside with all the other books with like a $5 sticker on it because it's a pretty big oversized book. And I went into my piggy bank and got $5 and gave my mom $5 so I could keep this book. Mm -hmm. And it's still in my closet. So, I mean, it's old. It was published, you know, in the 70s. So some of the stuff has been outdated and everything. But I still have it. Yeah. And I'm probably going to keep that book forever because I just... So I've loved Egypt since I was a little girl. Yeah. And that was one of... I read that book cover to cover when I was a kid several times. I mean, I've always just been a lover of anything mythology related. But we had the advantage of uh, being in an area where half-price books are a plenty. 
Um, and so Jess and I used to spend many an hour actually in the reference section yep. of Half Price. And I have a collection of books from multiple mythologies. Uh, I think Rick's actually using one of them right now for this. The and fiction writer horde. Yeah, basically. I have reference books for all kinds of stuff. But my love of Egyptian mythology came from a field trip that I went on when I was a kid. And there was this whole presentation on mummification and everything. And it just was so fascinating. And so between my collections of books and that that giant yellow book that I had with King Tut on the cover oh, yeah, that yeah. I, I used, it was like an encyclopedia of all world cultures and everything. But I just, I, I, it was always fascinating. It was, uh, mine wasn't just limited to ancient Egypt, but there, there is always just kind of that, you know, mysterious fascination. Probably because my dad also watched PBS with me a lot. And there was that whole thing of, oh, we found the secret chamber in this thing. And we're going to do this whole special on what we think is behind it. And then at the very end of it, there's nothing there. Oh my God. It was so so frustrating and I still don't think they figured it out the, and that was money. like that was like 15 years ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's actually really interesting hearing you guys talk about it um, I also was one of those kids that just like really liked Egyptian mythology um, and it was just one of those things like I don't remember a time I didn't um, what also really like kind of solidified more of the historical aspect is I had a world history class and I mean we went way in depth with this stuff like I went through like almost every single pharaoh in order from the unification of Egypt all the way up to fall of Egypt. Uh, it was one of those really interesting things because I, I had never gone that deep into a foreign history at all. Um, I'm a little bit different in that I'm the, you know, the new age tech guy, so I Google a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I have found so many interesting articles. It's funny because uh, when Rachel and I lived in South Korea for a little bit, mm -hmm. and while we were there, uh, one of the things that we made sure to do was to go see the King Tut exhibit, yeah. uh, which was written in Korean, which neither of us spoken. No, spoke. it was in English, too. It had English, too, though. So yeah. that worked out well, but we didn't know at the time. Yeah. Um, we just kind of <laughs> hoped. Um, so that obsession for with Egypt goes a long way back. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is for more than just Egypt. It's just in general mythology. Yeah, mythologies. Um, recently, I was trying to... Uh, I'm working on Sagira, like a short story vignette for Sagira, kind of like on Yuris's, and I wanted her to have a ledger... And so that led me to look up ciphers, which then led me to look up ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, which led me to Middle Egyptian hieroglyphs, which are called demonic hieroglyphs, which inspired Phoenician. Kind of interesting. But the University of Chicago has compiled the world's first demonic Egyptian to English dictionary for free on their website. I can put the link somewhere. It's really cool. Because it has all of the symbols and like the words that they kind of translate to, and mm -hmm. then I was like, you know what? I'm not going to write this in Egyptian like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of like pull we'll, myself back out. Of, I pull we'll that into goals. the show notes, yeah. though. This is the kind of historical rabbit hole that people go down. Like. Yes. And being a big fan of really weird things, because mm -hmm. the reason that I know so much about the fact that like Victorians ate mummy dust is that I, I read a listicle once, and then I was like, that can't be true. And then I like jumped down the rabbit hole on the internet to verify that source forever. And I was like, man, that's so creepy. And uh, yeah, people, cannibals, that's a thing. But like, if you're into really weird things on the internet, you're gonna find weird things about Egypt too. Edgar Allan Poe has a really weird short story about like a mummy unwrapping. They, they were really into that, yeah. that was a thing. They were horrible. If I can add actually two final things on this. Uh, first off, we mentioned at the top that the fine folks over at Nerds on Earth just did an article on Horus. 
So I would definitely check out over there and check out that article on horse because I thought it was very well done. And, yeah, I you know, really hey, liked it. Maybe, I, uh, maybe share it, drop them a couple lines and see if uh, I'm pushing for best set next. For obvious reasons. I really like that article, reasons. but I already knew everything in it just because I researched horse a lot for on Yeah, I know a lot about that. Some so. of us were learning new things. You're going to have to try harder, Clay, if you're going to get Heather to know new information. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, teach her about the non-Marvel Loki. Um, I know about that too. <laughs> interesting. How do you think I don't know about that? Okay, Thanks. anyway. The <laughs> other thing I wanted to mention, and I'm going to stop everyone else from going on a tangent about this, but if you get a chance to, and I don't know how many of our listeners are gamers, but the Explorer option for Assassin's Creed Origin. Yeah, the Discovery Tour. The Discovery Tour on there is fantastic. They did a study on it, a real study. To see if it was effective in teaching kids about ancient Egypt, yeah. and it was okay. It was decently. Yeah. Effective. It was it was almost as effective as having a teacher teach it. So I, that, which was really impressive for a so you know, anyway. not educationally focused. Considering yeah. I used well Assassin's research. Creed in my classroom before, and the, all the boys were like, "Yes," and even some of the girls were like, "This is awesome." Very very well researched. Like, yeah. yeah. So that that is pretty cool, and I think that there is a uh, free version of the game available that just has the Discovery Tour I online. Think so, so yeah. I'll look into that and oh, if I yeah. can find that I'll include that in the show notes as well that's cool I would also like to point out that TJ has provided us with a, uh, a wealth of Egyptian style pictures of which we uh, you may have seen some updates on our website as we are using them for the background pictures for our episodes on there now so I'm... if you want to go on there and check those out that's, yeah that, that's Let's really see. cool uh, yeah. thank you TJ yes TJ awesome cool pictures hopefully we haven't all seen them but we trust Rick it's the first mistake well, and it probably was. It would be he, he made the mistake of making me the person in charge of this, so we're all making mistakes. <laughs> so, moving on, we have a second email. Thanks, TJ. We answered hopefully everything and probably more than you even ever wanted. <laughs> um, all right, Shane has written us an email. Shane gave us a real town. We don't do that here. Where is Shane from? Oh, we already Can't made job. somebody from Shane, Rushmore. Shane so. is, I believe, from British Columbia, so we will give him uh, a shout out. Okay, um, sure, he's from there, but like, where is he actually from? Taldor. Taldor? Yeah, Taldor. I don't, I don't know a city in Taldor. Oh, wait, no, no, he's British Columbia. Columbia, that's up north, so uh, he could be from Urson. <laughs> from um, Urson? That's like Russia. I don't know. We're not wishing him into Urson, well, sir. He can, be from, he can be from Magnamar. Magnamar's a cool place. Magnamar's pretty cool. All right, <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Uh, also, let's be honest, there's nowhere in Galarian that's a happy place. That's true. Depending on what makes you happy. <laughs> All right, Shane from Magnamar says, Hello. <laughs> Loving the podcast so far. Hello, Thanks Shane. for putting it out there. I really enjoy how NPCs are worked into the story both by Rick in bringing them to life and by everyone else for their efforts to engage them as people and not just plot points. Thank makes you, it Shane. yep, makes it much more immersive. Great role playing all around. Well thank you. Mr. Thank you. We try. Yeah, I'm we, glad we, we put we you in the lovely city of Magnamar. Yes. I was wondering if you could detail how the party handles loot. It sounded like the beneficiary of a found magic item, such as Onuris with the Scarab Shield, needs to give the other PCs a portion of its value in gold. Is that correct? I would love to use this system in my games, especially one where I'm playing a monk and we never find monk things. Smiley face. Keep up the good work. This oh, is going to be... Shane. All right, Jordan. All right, Jordan. Actually, give a brief description. So this is a good opportunity to... Uh, to speak to the GMs out there, because I've got a couple of questions about delegation. I do find that delegating things out to players is a good thing. I don't keep track of treasure. Jordan keeps track of treasure. Rachel handles the med kit and all these sorted items they find. 
Heather tracks our timeline, which is probably why you hear her asking me for like more detailed questions on things periodically because oh, she writes how do you, down. How do you spell that is the yeah. most common yeah. one. Um, but she writes down like the first date that the game began and every date that follows that as the story progresses and Heather keeps track of all those and the events that take place. And you'll notice that I read out to Jessica the experience that the party gains for every one of these. Like, I, most of the time, I have no idea how close the party is to a level up. So, Jordan, Treasure, explain. Uh, okay, so to not make this like super complicated, um, the way that we do it is actually more of an accounting system, <laughs> which means that whenever you get loot, that's the party's loot. So Wait, no, please keep listening. <laughs> yeah, I know, as, as everybody starts going. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, so specifically, we... Shane, this is coming from our party monk. <laughs> Who so, has an abacus. Um, but yeah, we uh, so basically we take all the treasure, we pool it together, and then what I do is I divide that by the number of people. That that t- tells you how much everybody gets. If you take magic items out, I then deduct the value of that item out. So of that's your how pool out they, of your amount. Yeah. So the say say the total is twenty thousand. So that's divided by four is five thousand each, and on yours takes an item that. Is sell, a thousand gold. Is a thousand gold. Uh, he only which means gets, it's worth two thousand, but it's worth half. Yeah, so it money. would sell. It would full price is two thousand. It sells for a thousand. So we keep on yours gets a thousand taken away from his pot of five thousand. It only gets four. That way he's paying for the item, but everybody else still gets their full share of the loot. Gets the same amount of gold as if the item was sold. Yeah, that, that's the system that we use. Um, it seems to be most fair. I'm going to actually put together a blog post yeah, on exactly step-by-step step how I do it. Yeah, people, people have actually been asking a lot about that. The next question is in the same vein from Listexit and Vulling It. Uh, dyslexic I did it and correctly. Loving it. Did, did you really? I just said it correctly. Thank you. <laughs> I just talked over you. <laughs> Liz Desic. and Vulling It. Yep. Liz Desic and Vulling It. Uh, anyway, on Reddit, asked how we handle our med kit because we reference that like all the time because we don't have anything in it right now <laughs> yeah there's nothing in it but um i'm usually the one who takes care of the med kit um for the med kit i tend to divide um the potions and wands into two columns and everything and i put like cure like cure mod cure serious whatever and just and then anytime we use it i check it off and then i usually have a separate section that's potions scrolls and wands which could be the lesser restorations the raised deads any of that stuff Dime and I, we just keep it all together so that if we do get through a horrible slog and everybody's out of healing then i can just be like oh wait we have like 30 charges out of cure light wounds you know and then we can just be and, and it's it's centralized so that it's easier to see what everybody has versus uh, that it's only backfired one time that I can remember mm-hmm. having well, it all and it's, and it's always it's made up of stuff that we find in the treasure so yeah, we instead don't of like that. selling the wand or counting it as loot we throw no. it in the med kit and oh. whoever needs anything yeah. can use it, it yeah. and you don't they don't have to pay it back if you need a yeah. potion of cure light wounds and the med kit has five and you need one you just take one yeah that's that's another thing i actually forgot to mention is uh there's uh, there's a separate designation i put for party items which are things that aren't counted towards the total value of treasure which are stuff that we throw in the med kit usually yeah the uh the interesting thing with the med kit is also includes a lot of things that would not even be necessarily considered 
standard heal Medicine, healing items. Yeah. Oh, a lot yeah. of times it's if you find like a restorative ointment or scrolls of restoration Antidotes. or basically yeah. anything or, that's or even anything that removes status effects. Yeah. I imagine in this party, if you find any scrolls of remove curse, you're just gonna go, Well, let's keep that for later in case. Yeah. Well, assuming we don't use them right off the bat, but well, right yeah. now, yeah. yeah. We also generally um, Rachel generally does the med kit. So a lot of the time it ends up being that Rachel's not the healer, but Rachel has the med kit, which is cool because if your healer goes down, it's nice that your healer isn't the one that also carries your med kit. Yeah. Because then, you know, yeah. the rogue can be, well, well, I have a potion. Let me feed yeah. it to the... A lot there. of times, um, your primary healer doesn't carry the med kit, but, like, your secondary yeah. person, like, the person that can use magic device. So if your cleric goes down, you're not... Both. So, that like, <laughs> Citra could pull out... If we eventually have a wand in there, Citra could pull yeah. out a wand and bring mm -hmm. on Yuris up if he's out. You or know? if on Yuris was turned to stone. Yeah. yeah. The scroll of... <laughs> stone to flesh wouldn't be on the guy that's yeah. a statue now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we definitely uh, also keep those in the med kit. And, so, it, and occasionally we will, if we know we're going to be in a situation where we have to split the party or something like that, yeah. we might divvy Hands out up. a couple of the potions, but it's still... Usually the know, potions are fairly well divvied out ahead of time anyway, yeah. so mm -hmm. that everyone at least has a little bit of healing on them. Mm -hmm. We'll also sometimes pull our money and buy wands. So, Jessica... Yeah, yeah. I keep track of who or what gave us the experience so that you know, if Rick asks, did I give you experience for X? I have an answer to make sure it's accurate. And then in general, I just keep track of like how much experience we have and tell us when we level up. Like Most of the time I didn't even deal. know what our experience total is. Like that's yeah. why we're sometimes asking <laughs> Jess, it's like, how close are we? Because she has, she has a notebook that she literally, it's just a list of the addition as we go down. And I, what, what did I we fight? What's the challenge? Yeah. And I don't even XP? think that I don't probably in the past, what three years longer than that since we've been playing together i've ever written down an experience total on any of my character sheets nah. and we get away with that because i know there are some groups out there who everyone keeps their own experience and they don't they'll play if a member isn't there and sometimes the person that isn't yeah we we don't we play don't if everybody can't make it yeah um and i keep track of like all five games we play currently so I have a spiral that has several different divided sections, which I highly recommend if you're an analog person, which I am. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that's. I have I'm a different. Usually, I, if I get one of the five subjects, college ruled notebooks, I can fit about two adventure paths in a notebook. But when we start a new adventure path, if I've got I've got like three notebooks going right now because of all the mm -hmm. games we're doing, mm -hmm. usually I can fit two in one notebook. It just depends on. Some sessions I barely write anything, and then like episode twenty-four, I jotted down over a page and a half of information. So and it just... that's why we're often like Heather, who was that guy? And Heather's like, well, I don't know, I didn't write it down. Yeah, like, that's uh, Heather's the one that keeps track of that stuff. Yeah, so it is also just kind of a fun thing to be able to look back at later. I've always found it interesting to, especially when you're doing two campaigns that take place at close to the same time and in generally the same area. So, for instance running Curse of the Crimson Throne following running Rise of the Rune Lords is if you actually keep an accurate timeline that includes There's what day it is and what's going on, you can literally say, okay, well, at this time period, this is what's going on in the events of Rise of the Rune Lords while your characters are doing this. So you're walking by a tavern and you heard, it's like, oh, did you hear about blah, blah, blah that took place over in Sandpoint? Not really a spoiler, the adventure pass starts at Sandpoint. 
And then someone could be like, oh yeah, I totally heard about that. And then the party knows, generally speaking, where they are in relation and the time to those other things. And so periodically I get to throw out things that it's just like, it's like, oh, we're going to this city. And I'm like, yeah, but keep in mind that your character that did this thing in the city won't actually be here for another two years. <laughs> and I think what the rule is, if a book was published in 2018, it's 4718 in Galarian. Is that generally the way they use it? The, the adventure paths take place in the year or start in the year that they are released. Yeah. And then they go wherever they go from there. Mm. So, for instance, you know, Mask was released in 2014. Yeah, it's 4714. So it's 4714. It's Feyrast, which is March. Which means that if you're playing something along the lines of Return of the Rune Lords, you are actually doing something four years after the event of the Adventure Path that we're doing right now. Yeah. And it, like Rick said, it's really handy because we kind of have an idea of where our other characters are, what our other characters could be doing, what's happened, what hasn't. You That's know? fun. So long and short GMs out there, delegation is definitely a good thing. And with some of the things that they brought up with second edition and the hero point system that they're implementing, where you can give players bonus hero points for doing things outside of just showing up and playing the game, definitely something to look into. We will be writing an article about yeah, this. I think we're going to... So, yeah, check it out. Yeah, blog, well, each of us will write a blog post about our and little our, jobs. Our, our part of it, yeah. And our suggestions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I guess that's it. Uh, thanks for joining us for this after party. <clears throat> Thank you, guys. Bye. Good luck, Pathfinders. We all need to come up with our own sign-off. I just say bye in a weird voice. <laughs> <laughs>